You've probably already gotten your first bug bite of the season, but itch is way more than skin deep. I thought that all it was telling us was how do we sense something outside of our body? But it's teaching us how we sense everything, not just outside of our body, not just the five senses, but a thousand senses. This week on Unexplainable, scientists have barely scratched the surface of itch. So how deep does it go? Listen to Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is a special episode of Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Joyce Vance. Joyce, so here we are, not on the usual day that we do either The Insider or that I do in brief. And we now have the score, if you will. Former President Donald Trump was impeached twice, and he's now been indicted twice. Uh, in our system of federalism, he has managed to get indicted both in the state, in New York, and by the federal government, the DOJ in particular, with respect to the document handling at Mar-a-Lago. This is a pretty substantial, momentous thing. We said this at the time of the Manhattan DA's indictment, but th- this is a little bit different in scope and scale. Do you agree? It is different in scope and scale. It's a moment that is so, I think, we're living through the moment. I, I suspect it's hard to fully appreciate its significance. But, you know, Preet, I was thinking this morning that a year ago today, you and I were talking about the fact that the January 6th committee, the House committee, was just spinning up for the first of those eight hearings that it held. And at that point in time, there was no certainty that the committee could do anything meaningful And folks had almost given up on Merrick Garland and DOJ. A year later, we're seeing, I think, some some real evidence that there is some vitality in our criminal justice system and that the rule of law still matters in this country. I think all of those things are true. This is conduct that, you know, relates to a privilege and an abuse of a privilege that a president has to look at sensitive material, classified material, Uh, and then willfully retain it. So, Joyce, let's spend some time talking about the actual indictment. It varies a little bit from what some people have been reporting, which is why we always say, you know, keep an open mind and let's see what the indictment or the actual document, once unsealed, says. And we were told seven counts. Instead, there are 38 total counts, 37 of which pertain to Donald Trump, one uh, solely charging a second defendant, his body guy, Walt Nauda. The first 31 counts of the indictment are violations of the Espionage Act, that section 793 we've been talking about before, the willful retention of sensitive defense information or otherwise classified documents. And each one of those documents is its own separate count. Then you have conspiracy to obstruct justice, some other things relating to the obstruction of justice and the withholding of documents. Is this what you expected? You know, I think this is pretty straight up the middle. This is the one-two punch that we've talked about, charging Trump with retention and other mishandling of documents and then charging him with obstructing the investigation. Did we need 31 counts? Did we need one for every single document? I'm a huge fan of keeping indictments simple, and we're all still trying to digest this indictment. But I think in this case, they've actually done a good job. They limited the counts to what they felt like they had to charge for documents. They lay out the case for obstruction. Yes, it will be a lot of counts for a jury to go through. But based on my initial read, I think that this is warranted. I don't view this as overcharging. Yeah, no, I agree with that. 
The most impressive part of the indictment relates to very recent reporting. I mean, I guess the government had it first. <laughs> there were some leaks about what some of the evidence might be. And that is this recording from July of 2021 in which Donald Trump is meeting with members of his staff with a couple of people who are ghostwriting Mark Meadows' memoir, none of whom have national security clearances of, of any kind at all. And Trump is no longer the president of the United States. And he's trying to prove a point relating to his disagreement with General Milley. And he clearly summons up a document, you know, some pages of documents, and he says to the group, this is secret. This is secret information. Look at this. Look, look at this. <laughs> then he says, you know, see, as president, I could have declassified it. Now I can't, you know, but this is still a secret. And we've been discussing offline for the last couple of days how devastating that is. And there's a reason why it's featured super prominently in the indictment, because in one fell swoop, you have Donald Trump's state of mind, in his own words, his understanding of what his limited powers are with respect to declassifying, notwithstanding the things that he has been saying and his lawyers have been saying. And also, also at the same time, basically uh, neutering three of the defenses that he and his lawyers have been putting forward for the past number of months. They include the idea, the notion that Trump had a standing order to declassify documents when he left the presidency. Uh, sometimes they have said Donald Trump actually can mentally or telepathically declassify documents. And sometimes they have said the documents are automatically declassified when Donald Trump leaves office or takes them to Mar-a-Lago or to Bedminster. I find the recitation of this recording and its transcript to be the single most devastating thing in the indictment. This really is, this is the smoking gun piece of evidence in this case. This is Trump in essence committing a crime while he's in the room with these folks on tape. He's actually showing classified material that he is not entitled to have to other people who are not entitled to see it while discussing his guilty state of mind and knowledge that it's a crime at the same time. It's really pretty remarkable. I can't remember ever seeing anything like this. It goes right to a state of mind, as you and I have been saying. You probably don't even need the recording because presumably the people who are in the room will be witnesses at the trial and the government in its case in chief will say, what did you hear the former president say? And they would give the gist of the testimony. But they would have been subject to cross-examination about their memory and about the nuances of what Donald Trump had said. Now there's no need to worry about the nuances and people's memories because their testimony corroborates the recording and the recording will corroborate their testimony. So it's a big problem for him. Now, there's something else in the indictment that I think is interesting and was foreshadowed by many people, including you and me, over the course of years. And that is the things that Donald Trump says, whether it's been in recent times or in the 2020 uh, campaign or in the 2016 campaign, will come back to, to haunt him and will be relevant to his state of mind and relevant to, I think, a jury. You see straight up on page nine of the indictment, even before we get to the main of the recording, there's a section called Trump's Public Statements on Classified Information. And it recites a number of them. Can, can I just stop you for a second and ask you, what do you think was the mood of employees of the special counsel's office as they typed this stuff, this part of the you indictment? Know, hopefully their mood was somber, but gratifying because they uh, believe in the rule of law. But if you're asking the question, you know, what does it feel like to have good evidence and particularly the type of evidence that you rarely get, and that is things coming out of the mouth of the target or the defendant himself that incriminate the defendant or the target himself. Yeah, 
you know, you like typing those things into an indictment. Unbelievable. Continue. So on August 18th, 2016, Trump stated, quote, In my administration, I'm going to enforce all laws concerning the protection of classified information. No one will be above the law. On September 6, 2016, Trump said, we also need to fight this battle by collecting intelligence and then protecting, protecting our classified secrets. We can't have someone in the Oval Office who doesn't understand the meaning of the word confidential or classified. I'll do one more, but there, there are a number of them here. On September 7, 2016, Trump said one, one of, of the, the first things we must do is to enforce all classification rules and to enforce all laws relating to the handling of classified information. Then, during his presidency, the government points out in the indictment on July 26, 2018, he issued a statement about classified information and says, among other things, as the head of the executive branch and commander-in-chief, I have a unique constitutional responsibility to protect the nation's classified information, including by controlling access to it. It goes on and on and on. Explain to people why that's important, even though it's not quite evidence of the crime. Why is that relevant and why will that be important? So this is all evidence of knowledge and state of mind. In essence, that Trump knew that what he was doing was wrong. He knew he was violating the law. He was hyper-focused on the Hillary Clinton situation. He condemned it. He committed it would not happen in his administration. And then he did it. And I agree with you. It's really rare as a prosecutor that you get to show the jury evidence coming from the defendant's own mouth of the defendant saying, you know, everything that I did, it was a crime. And I knew it. This is just incredible. It's just take a step back and say, it's a well-drafted indictment. There's a lot more detail. It would be apples and oranges to compare this indictment to the one out of the Manhattan DA's office. But I will, I will say, without disparaging anyone, and everyone has you know different missions and goals and their different jurisdictions, but this is a more satisfying read. There's more information. There's more detail. There's more storytelling. There's more evidence that's provided. There's no mystery as to what the evidence is going to be. There are no issues of, you know, what's the predicate here? One of the stories that's very, I think, bad for the, for the president relating to all the obstruction-related counts is about how allegedly Trump and Nauda, his body person, conspired to obstruct justice by, among other things, removing boxes of documents from his premises before one of Trump's attorneys was supposed to come and look for documents. How, how'd you find that narrative? You know, I think we had all pieced this together, but wondered if the government would go this far. And the government went, I think, further than what we had seen before this indictment was unsealed. This is a clear-cut conspiracy to engage in obstruction. Trump even goes so far as to say, and this was not a detail I had heard before I read the indictment, that he would rearrange his summer vacation plans so he could be at Mar-a-Lago while Attorney One, um, which I take it as Evan Corcoran, was there going through boxes, almost as though he wants to make sure that Corcoran doesn't see anything that Trump wants him to see. It's very clear that this is a, a tight stretch where Trump is going through boxes 
We don't know for sure if he's taking things out and keeping them. There's a, a little lack of clarity there. And the government never says whether they have gotten everything back or whether they think there's still stuff in Trump's possession. But the narrative of conspiracy to obstruct and to hide the truth from Trump's lawyers, in essence, to use the lawyers to commit the crime, is really well put together by DOJ. They don't leave much to the imagination. The other running theme of the indictment is in paragraph after paragraph, there's a recitation of how deeply and personally involved Trump was with respect to caring about the documents, wanting the documents, looking at the documents, how the documents were stored, what was going to be given over, what was not. I was very struck by that. You you see it again and again and again. There's texting about what the president wants with respect to the documents, all of which combined with the other pieces of evidence we've already mentioned that go to his state of mind, tell you that it's going to be very difficult for him to say, look, I'm a very important person, former president of the United States. Other people, my minions did this. They did the mining. They did the packaging. They did the moving. I didn't know anything about it. That is belied by all these paragraphs talking about his deep personal involvement. They are absolutely meticulous in this indictment about pinning everything on Trump, starting at the very top of the indictment with the reference to the fact that Trump is involved in packing his boxes and directing their transfer to Mar-a-Lago before he leaves the White House. It is on every page of this indictment. His fingerprints might as well be on it. On page two of the indictment, it says, on two occasions in 2021, Trump showed classified documents to others as follows. Now, one of those incidents we've already talked about. It's reflected in that recording. That's the July 2021 meeting with Mark Meadows' ghostwriters. And the other one, I'm not sure that we knew this before, but I'll just read it for folks. The other one, according to the indictment, was, quote, in August or September 2021 at the Bedminster Club, Trump showed a representative of his political action committee who did not possess a security clearance, a classified map related to a military operation, and told the representative that he should not be showing it to the representative and that the representative should not get too close. Did we know that? I think we might have heard something about Bedminster, but not this whole story. And I have a lot of questions, starting with why you would need to show someone who is representing your pack a classified battle map. But setting that aside for the minute, what's new here is classified documents at Bedminster, widely suspected, confirmed here in the indictment. And so again, I'll just flag that point that DOJ doesn't clarify that they have received all of their documents back. Do you think there could be another indictment coming in New Jersey? I don't know. I'm not going to speculate about that. (laughs) I'm not going to speculate about that. But, you know, the one thing that's that's good for transparency purposes in the government's decision to, to separate out the first 31 counts by document is there are brief descriptions of the documents. And if I go through them, you know, there's this question about whether or not the documents need to be classified or not, or have classified markings or not. And we have said that the the Espionage Act doesn't require that. But for purposes, I think, of jury appeal and showing that these were not BS over classified documents, the the bare descriptions of them indicate that, that virtually all, if not all, were classified at a high level. So just going through it while I have it in front of me, counts one going forward, count one, top secret, count two, top secret, count three, top secret, four, top secret, five, six, document seven, secret, eight, secret, nine, top secret. And you go on and on and on. I'm trying, I guess at number 11, count 11 for people who are paying attention and keeping score, 
uh, doesn't have marking, but it's an undated document concerning military contingency planning of the United States. And then you keep going and it's secret, 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 top secret, top secret. That's relevant, not necessarily to the elements of the crime, but I think relevant to showing a jury and the public, quite frankly, for that matter, this is serious stuff. It's not trivial stuff. You know, it's incredible. And there's a little bit of foretelling in paragraph three of the complaint where they're talking about Trump storing information in boxes with personal papers while he's president. And they list some of the classified materials that get mixed in with those boxes. And it's information regarding defense and weapons capabilities, both of the U.S. and foreign countries, U.S. nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States, plans for possible retaliation to a foreign attack. You know, all the stuff that you would normally keep with your kids' blue ribbons and family <laughs> photos, right? And then you look at this listing in the charges, and I'll tell there's a lot here to, to parse. Something that really jumps out to me are the repeated references to documents that relate to Five Eyes. That's our closest intelligence partners. And you think about how this lands with those countries who we rely on for partnership, for information, for mutual support, and this horrible knowledge that we were not able to protect their secrets because of the former president and the impact that I would think that this would have on jurors, no matter who they voted for in the last election, is just going to be catastrophic for Trump. Speaking of impact on jurors, what about this detail, which is at page 11 of the indictment? After a recitation of a text exchange between Trump employee one and Trump employee two about documents and boxes that the former president wanted to keep in the business center or maybe not want to keep in the business center. The indictment says, after the text exchange, some of Trump's boxes were moved from the business center to a bathroom and shower in the Mar-a-Lago Club's lake room as depicted in the photograph below. And then you got a picture of the boxes in the bathroom and shower. You know, I mean, it's incredible. There are boxes there. There are boxes in the gold and white ballroom where the indictment is careful to say, you know, this is a public space. People were coming in and out holding functions. And there's just boxes of the United States nuclear secrets sitting on a stage, ready access to anyone. And there's one sort of mysterious reference in the indictment. It's on page 13 at the bottom. And it's Walt Nauta walks into one of the areas where they're storing items and he sees literal spillage. I mean, not classified document spillage. There are boxes that have fallen. Their contents are spilled on the floor in a storage room. There are documents that are marked secret, relate to Five Eyes. And Nauta is texting another employee saying, hey, I just walked in and this stuff was all over the floor. You know, those boxes didn't spill themselves. We don't really know based on what's in the complaint, how that happened, who was responsible, if it suggests something dire or just sloppiness. But it is remarkable. It will land with the jury. Before we move on to other things, I wonder if you have a thought about defenses. The indictment has only just been unsealed. We're still processing it, still absorbing it. It seems to me that the counts relating to these documents are quite, quite strong. Uh, I don't know what a viable defense is at the moment other than nullification, that it's unfair in some way, if that can be argued, but it's, I'm not sure that can be argued. On the obstruction-related counts, you know, you see in some of these counts, the phraseology with respect to Donald Trump is not always that he made the false statement or he obstructed, but that he caused false information to be conveyed to law enforcement. There was that false certification 
that wasn't Donald Trump's certification, but that he caused it to be made. Do you see some room there and some space for the defense to make a viable argument? So in some ways, this really pits Trump against his lawyers. Increasingly, I think today, some of them have become former lawyers. And the question is going to be, who wants to go to prison for Donald Trump? Will they say that Trump caused them to do stuff, that he misled them, or even that knowing that they were obstructing the government's investigation, they participated? Will they tell the truth or will they take the fall for Trump? You know, at this point, we're looking at charges, some of which are 10-year statutory maximums. I think some of these 15, 12 charges may even carry a little bit more time. That's a lot. Trump has had great success over the years in retaining folks' loyalty. I think his luck runs out here. And I think particularly with lawyers in the mix, these people will confirm that Trump was obstructing the investigation. And it may be, frankly, that on some of these charges, I haven't carefully studied everything yet, but when they're saying that Trump caused the statements to be made, I think that they may have documentary backup of that in some cases. I want to give some credit to you, Joyce, because you're always right. Can you tell my husband that, please? <laughs> and, and this might not be a huge point to some folks, but there was this, this debate and speculation about where the case would be filed. And for months and months, people said Washington, D.C., and there's a basis for venue in D.C., uh, also a basis for venue where Mar-a-Lago is in the Southern District of Florida, and the case was brought in Florida. Do you want to take a victory lap on that one, Joyce? You know, not a victory lap so much as a sigh of relief. As an appellate lawyer, the notion that all of these charges were going to be indicted in D.C. made me a little bit twitchy because of the venue issue. Constitutionally, venue is a constitutional requirement. You got to charge a defendant where the crime occurred. Well, well where some part of the crime occurred and some yeah. part of the crime arguably with respect to the you know, taking of documents, according to D.C., right? But isn't it definitionally true that the documents were taken from D.C. and that's part of the crime? There's an argument for D.C., but there's a factual twist. There's some reporting that when Trump left D.C. with the documents, it was before Biden was formally installed as president and that Trump got to Mar-a-Lago while he was still technically president. You'll recall that whole thing about skipping the inauguration. If that holds up, you know, I've seen that suggestion. I'm not sure how accurate that whole timeline is, but there could be an argument that the retention doesn't happen until he's in Florida. So here's the deal. There's a case pending in the Supreme Court. It was argued a couple of weeks ago, Smith versus United States. There is currently a split in the circuits about whether the government can retry a case if it picks the wrong venue the first time. Interestingly, the 11th Circuit is on the side of that split that would permit the government to retry its case in the proper venue. Right. You want to get it right the first time. But there's a lot of risk here, right? If the Supreme Court this term, after this case is indicted, said, sorry, if you pick the wrong venue, it's fatal to the case. And if some or all of this case, because the court looks at each count individually for these venue determinations, but if they'd indicted D.C. and if some of it was the wrong venue, they could have been out of luck. So they indict in the Southern District of Florida. And as far as we know, and we don't have full confirmation of this, one consequence of indicting in Florida, ironically, Joyce, is that there's some evidence that the case has been assigned already, whether as a related case or just by happenstance, to a judge our listeners may be familiar with. Her name is Aileen Cannon. That is the judge, you'll recall, who presided over earlier phases of the investigation, 
ordered that there be a special master uh, with respect to the document seized at Mar-a-Lago, uh, and had virtually all of her ruling thrown out by the Circuit Court of Appeals, who, which was very critical, as were many, many legal experts, including you and me, she now has the case, possibly. Isn't that a problem? So I think at the time I referred to the strength of the circuit's uh, criticism of her as bench slapping. And and really, that's what they did. They were very sharply critical of Cannon. Now, look, the, the standard for recusal in the 11th Circuit is a little bit squishy, but I actually briefed and argued some of these cases to the circuit in my earlier life as an appellate chief. And when you're looking at a judge and thinking about recusal, the standard really comes down to whether the judge's conduct has been so egregious that for them to continue to participate in the case would undermine public confidence. I think, you know, if you look up what undermining confidence in the judiciary looks like in the dictionary, there's a picture of Aileen Cannon, because really, this is a woman who was put on the bench after Trump lost the election, who went on to rule in his favor in ways that were egregiously wrong after the circuit told her she really didn't have jurisdiction to even hear the matter. Whether she is inclined to voluntarily recuse from this case, if it's in fact assigned to her or not, I suspect the court has a lot of interest in preserving its institutional integrity, and she will not be the judge who hears this case. We should make clear, because there's a lot of speculation about this point as well, that it is not likely to be a strong basis for recusal, the mere fact that she was appointed by Trump. We've had judges who have ruled on, on matters relating to the, to the administration's who have appointed them, although never in such a direct and clear way in the history of the republic, really. But if that's the standard, then there would be an argument to recuse a Biden-appointed judge as well, right? Because Biden is an opponent. And I don't think that that is the standard, right? I, I think, by and large, we just set that stuff aside. The facts of her nomination and confirmation are unique. But, for instance, one of the cases I argued involved a judge who, in two previous instances, had been reversed by the circuit for outrageous rulings. And they said, look, you know, normally we don't intervene. Enough is enough. This case needs to be reassigned on remand. I think cognizant of, of that legal standard, Judge Cannon will be counseled to recuse. And I would be surprised if she did not. Two points on this further. One is maybe she doesn't want to be in that position. She got a lot of criticism. It was probably not a pleasant experience for her. So I don't know that she wants to be in that position. And number two, it'd be a pretty incredible irony that in the ordinary course, had there not been the prior proceedings with the special master, this case might have gone to Eileen Cannon, who there's reason to believe has significant bias and is not uh, you know, a world-class judge. But for that prior proceeding, where she showed herself to be untrustworthy with respect to some aspects of the law, the government would not be in a position to seek her recusal now. Odd, right? Karma, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go, we should maybe talk about what this means, remind people what the consequences of an indictment are. Nothing about this indictment, which comes, by the way, in our system with a presumption of innocence. It doesn't mean we can't talk about the strength of the case, but there's a presumption of innocence. Nothing about the indictment prevents Donald Trump from running for president and continuing his campaign, right? Absolutely. When he is arraigned on Tuesday, the same discussion came up with respect to the Manhattan DA's indictment. Uh, he will not be placed in cuffs. He's been asked to self-surrender. Do you expect, as in the prior state case, 
that he will be processed in the ordinary course, be fingerprinted. Um, and then I guess the same question arises, will he have his mugshot taken or not? It was not taken, as I understand it, in the Manhattan DA's case. So I think the Secret Service will negotiate those details with the United States Marshal. I've been told that a Secret Service agent will obviously accompany him at all times, that they will ask that the process be expedited out of security concerns, and that perhaps of most interest, if you're Donald Trump, he will not come into any contact with any other inmates during the process. Whether he gets photographed I don't know the answer to that. What I'm curious about is when he's released, I I seriously doubt he'll be held in custody uh, in pretrial detention. When he's released, will he have to wear a monitoring bracelet like any other defendant would? I I don't see why he wouldn't have to. Yeah. Maybe the service will have security concerns that somebody could hack it, but. Yeah, I I don't see that happening. And so Joyce, as we wrap up, we should note that special counsel Jack Smith went to the podium and made some statements about the case that's of historical dimension, unprecedented federal charges against a former president of the United States. Here's some of what he said. The men and women of the United States intelligence community and our armed forces dedicate their lives to protecting our nation and its people. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical for the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. Violations of those laws put our country at risk. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle of the Department of Justice. And our nation's commitment to the rule of law sets an example for the world. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. So Joyce and I will have much, much more for you next week on the Cafe Insider podcast. If you're not yet a member of Cafe Insider, you can join for $1 for the first month at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669 669- 247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashur. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.